Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. There's a hymn that was written by Horatio Spafford called It Is Well. I'm sure it's familiar with many of you. And there's one line in there that says these words, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. What he's essentially saying is that there's going to be a day where what we see is what we believe, and there's never a doubt about that. Because in this world, even if you are a Christian who, whose faith is completely based on what you do not see, there's always this, perhaps this tinge of, is this really true? And Horatio Spafford is saying, there's going to be a day where whatever you see is equal to what is absolutely real, and there's zero doubt about that for any single person. Until that day, faith is a significant part of our life as a believer of Christ. And as long as there is still sin in this world, it's going to be this way. But the struggle of that is so often what we're wrestling with. There's a a father of a boy who needed healing in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. And he cries out these words, I believe, help my unbelief. And I don't know if any of you have ever felt that way, that sense of, yes, Lord, I do believe, but help me to believe. And how can those two statements coincide simultaneously? How do you believe, but yet still not believe? That's really what Jesus is referring to in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, is this great challenge that we have to believe without the, the full sense of completely trusting. And so what I'd like to do is look at this struggle through three realizations from this passage. The first is the idea of seeing is not always believing. And that's in verse 23. The second is trusting is not entrusting in verse 24. And, the th and three, needing is not knowing in verses 24 to 25. So first, when it comes to true saving faith, seeing is, not often, is often not believing. And that's what we read in verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And at first glance, it seems like these people who had seen these miracles decided to believe in Christ. They were believing. It sounds like what John is saying in verse 23. Because up, up to this point, after the miracle of turning the water to wine in Cana, Jesus performs many other miracles that aren't necessarily listed here in this passage. But we do know they happen. And so by verse 23, it says that many believed in his name. But the question is, what does that belief look like? And how long does it last for? Is it 
the full belief of, I believe you, Jesus, and so now I'm going to live my life for you forever? Or does it mean something else? Moving forward in John chapter 6, we're going to see that there are many who believe, who are disciples, who actually decide to leave him. So it is possible to believe, but not believe. To give you uh, an example of this, or just some considerations, first, demons believe in Jesus. They know who he is. Unlike many people who do not know Christ, demons fully know Christ. They believe he's the son of God. They believe he's the savior of the world. They believe he is God. In James chapter 2, verse 19, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So they clearly believe Jesus is God. Luke records in Luke chapter 4, verse 41, and demons also came out of many crying, you, Jesus, are the son of God. So clearly, we see that just because you believe that Jesus is God himself does not mean that you place your life in him. Does that mean that you believe and entrust yourself to him? And so demons saw miracles. They knew those miracles to be true, and yet they do not believe in him. Second, believing because you see is often fleeting. Despite spending all the time with Jesus where he would perform miracles, teach, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years, Judas did not believe in Jesus. But he saw the miracles. In one level, he did believe Jesus, but he doesn't ultimately believe him. And the disciples themselves, they would scatter, they would run away at his most desperate hour. And so this faith that they had, clearly it wasn't something that simply by walking and seeing all these miracles, and you might say to yourself, if I saw those miracles, I would surely believe in Jesus. And perhaps if you do not trust in Christ today and you walked into here, you might be thinking, if I believe in, if I saw those miracles too, I, I would be a Christian, but I haven't seen any miracles, so I'm not a Christian. Or maybe some of you have said, I have seen miracles, but that's not enough. Seeing is not always believing. In fact, we're told that in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, three women come. They go to the tomb. They see the empty tomb. They're told by an angel that the Lord has risen. So they run. They go and tell the disciples. And they tell them, the Lord has risen. The Lord has risen. And then Luke chapter 24, verse 11. But these words seem to them, the disciples, an idle tale. And they did not believe them. So the disciples who were already told that Christ would rise from the grave by himself after all those years, seeing those miracles. And then they have these eyewitness accounts of these women who were clearly part of their grouping of people, people they trusted, saying, we have seen the risen Lord, and yet they still could not believe it. What did it take for them to believe? Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And their eyes were opened. And the reason is because According to verse 2431, prior, it says, the Lord showed them the scriptures about himself, broke bread with them, and then their eyes were opened by the Lord. So it took God himself 
to unveil their eyes, to unblind them, to open them. It's possible then to actually in some way physically believe, intellectually believe, experientially believe, emotionally believe, and yet still not truly believe. Uh, for those of you who perhaps grew up in youth ministry or college ministry or anything like that, you've probably encountered many different people who would come. And what's interesting about college ministry is in the beginning of the semester, it's usually packed. And the reason is because everyone's trying to find a friend, I mean, especially freshmen. And then slowly as the semester goes along, it sort of peters off. And then at the very end, there's sort of this last push. But retreats would come along and you attend these retreats and so many people were so moved. Tears would flow. There would be a testimony time given and people would come up and say, I've believed in Jesus. But it wouldn't take long once the semester began and once life became busy where those testimonies became sort of weak. People's hearts became a little hardened. And those emotions that were driving everything slowly started fading away. It's not enough to feel or to experience something. And so we're told here that even eyewitness accounts, even miracles, it's not enough. To really hone in on this point, you know, 10 lepers came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, son of David, have pity, heal us. And so the Lord, and by the way, he doesn't heal every single person he encounters. He selectively decides sovereignly, providentially to heal only certain people. And in this instance, he healed all 10. So leprosy is a dreadful condition. If you've ever seen pictures of it, you almost, you do not want to see pictures of it. It's horrific. Um, because of a neurological condition where there's no feeling of pain, suddenly a person would place their hand on a fire, an open fire, and they could not tell that their hand is on fire. And so the hand would fall off, burn off, crisp off. Their nose would fall off. Their, their face would deform. And so these people were considered to be unclean, spiritually speaking as well as physically. And so they were kept on the outskirts of the village. And they had to shout out unclean to make sure that no one came near them. And so you can imagine these people who are ostracized, friendless, rejected by even their families so often. And they are going to Jesus and saying, please heal us. And the most amazing thing happens, they're healed. Most of these people by pretty much from birth, have lived this type of life. And just consider that for a moment. And then suddenly, they're miraculously healed. So you would think, if that happened to me, what would your response be? Well, nine of them left, and they didn't ever come back and say anything to Jesus at all. Only one. Only one came back and say, you are God. You are the Lord. I want to worship you. I want to follow you. This is a miracle. So you can have this dramatic change. Transform, it's a transformative change of your life. But unless you have faith, unless the Lord opens your eyes, you will not believe. This doesn't just happen to lepers and people in scripture. It happens to us. How often we as sinners forget 
the giver of the gift and only focus on the gift. So many of us are richly blessed. We have health, we have resources, we have a family who loves us. We get to take vacations and be able to enjoy the beauty of our world. During this season of Christmas, we get to travel perhaps or experience the blessing of family gatherings. So many blessings. But how often we focus on the one area of our life where it's lacking and it leads to complaint, covetousness, jealousy, envy. And so rather than focusing on all that God has given to us, we easily fixate on what's wrong. And that leads to anger, disappointment, frustrations, worries, floods our soul. So we shouldn't be so quick to judge these nine lepers to say, well, if I was one of those people, I would have definitely came back. The question is, are you coming back now? Are you looking at all of the blessings of your life and regularly giving thanks to him? Or do you focus on the one area of your life that is not so full? And we say, God is not just. He's not good. He's not kind. He's not merciful. Even praying for healing. We prayed for healing and we do that corporately, regularly. It's one of the common prayer requests that we often pray over, isn't it? When, some, when you hear about someone is ill or sick, you pray for them. Well, let's say miraculously, and sometimes this happens, they get healed. But let's say they get healed. Is it permanent forever healing or is it a healing for 10 years? Some of your parents, perhaps they're ill right now. And maybe if they're on the older side, if your parents are, say, in their 70s or 80s, and let's say they have cancer. And so you ask for prayer and all these different people start praying and suddenly the cancer is gone. And you say, Praise God, the cancer is gone. How long will that cancer be gone for? How long will that person live? Another 10 years? 20 years? That's it. And then their life is over. And what matters then has nothing to do with physical healing. It's, do they know Christ? You see, we recognize so often that our belief and our faith, it's not what we see, it's not based on that. It shouldn't be. But we so often fixate on that and it keeps us from actually trusting in Christ, believing in him. Jesus makes this clear in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. Abraham, in responding to the rich man, who is asking, can I come back from the dead, even as a vision, and just warn my brothers and my sisters who do not believe in you? Because if they see me, and I can warn them, then they'll really believe. And if any of you know the story of that parable, Abraham says this in Luke chapter 16, verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And I know we might be skeptical whether that's true. You might be thinking, yeah, but if they really did see someone rise from the grave, wouldn't they believe? And the answer is no. If they do not believe, in, in other words, if their eyes are not opened by the Lord, if they don't hear and trust and believe, then there's no way they're going to believe, even if they rise from the grave. Because you'll say, oh, they weren't really dead. Oh, they, they just need a little CPR. No, 
something, there's going to be another reason or another excuse. But the last thing you'll say is, God has done the work, unless the Lord opens your eyes. Think of your own family. If you have unbelieving members of your family and you present the gospel message, why is it that you believe and they don't believe? Now, you have the same genetic makeup as your brother or sister or your mother or father. You have, everything is similar biologically. You're also hearing the same message, maybe from the same person. So a preacher comes up and preaches a message. For you, it makes complete sense. Your eyes are open, you believe. The other person, they say, that's a bunch of hogwash. How can that be? It has to be that God has opened eyes to one person, not the other. I remember when the Berlin Wall fell, for some of you who can recall that time, and I believe it was 1989. And prior to that, there were so many prayers lifted up on behalf of Christians, especially to those who were behind the Iron Curtain. And primarily because to be in the Soviet Union sphere as a Christian was quite often incredibly dangerous. So many Christians lost their lives. The church was being persecuted. And there were many, many people praying that God would do the work of opening the doors of the Soviet Union. Well, in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell and communism, at least in the Eastern Bloc of the Soviet Union, ended. And it was dramatic. But you go back and you listen to the reasons as to, and the rationale as to why the wall fell it's often said that it's because of Ronald Reagan's foreign policy. Or perhaps it's because of Mikhail Gorbachev's policy of glasnost in, in the Soviet Union. Maybe there's some sort of socioeconomic political factors. In other words, there's always a reason for something, and there's two sides of it. There's either the physical material side, which isn't to say that that's not a factor, but what is the ultimate cause? Is it God himself sovereignly moving, opening doors and doing the work that only he can do and God just uses means? Or is it totally without God? This is this constant push. When we see a miracle, is it a real miracle that God is doing the work or is it you know, just a confluence of events? Good luck, fortuitousness, um, fate, science, Something has done the work. See, that's two perspectives. And unless you have your eyes open, you will always err on the side of, it's not a miracle. It's not God at work. It's just physical, material factors playing out in life. That's why seeing will never cause you to believe. Because when you physically see something and your eyes, your spiritual eyes are not open, you will always, always have some sort of rationale besides God himself. So this means that if you have non-believing friends or family or coworkers or neighbors, yes, go and share Christ with them, share the gospel, the good news, bring a meal, love them, be compassionate, be kind, but none of that will actually turn someone to Christ. God uses those things as a means, but we never trust the means we always trust him who provides those means. We trust him who actually opens eyes. And so your greatest prayer 
has to be constantly, Lord, open eyes, raise the dead, show people yourself, your glory. It is about him and it's not about me. And that's the best place we can be at. So this story, Jesus is showing us, John is showing us that believing is not in and of itself just simply seeing signs. It has to be more than that. Another realization from this passage is that trusting is not entrusting. And I tell you that this is one of the most important relational, um, sounds a little pragmatic, but tools or relational uh, pictures of how we can deal with one another rightly. We get this from Jesus himself in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. If we look at verse 23 again, John said, many believed in his name. You see that word believed in verse 23? It's the same word here in verse 24 with trust and trusting. It's actually the same word. So you could put it this way. You could say many trusted in him, but he did not entrust himself to them. And the reason he doesn't entrust himself to them is because there is not a single thing that is hidden from the hearts of people. You and I, we can try to hide many things from people to make ourselves look better than we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, we do that in little ways pretty regularly throughout our lives. We'll tell a story that doesn't make us look as bad as it could be. If we're late for a meeting because we overslept, we might say, I ran into traffic. And the problem, the reason we do that and we lie, because that is a lie, is that we don't want to sound so bad. And that happens pretty regularly if we're honest with ourselves. Thing is, we can't do that to Jesus. I mean, imagine that. In fact, Jesus knows so much about us that he knows things that we don't even realize about ourselves. We don't realize why we, our personality is a certain way. And we might track back to our family, to our family history, to our parents, to our environment growing up. But in the end, we're not exactly sure. Jesus knows exactly why you and I, we are the way we are. And there's nothing hidden from him about us. Jesus knows the hearts of people. He knows the deepest, innermost parts of us. And even those who did decide to follow him, there was a hidden part that they thought Jesus wouldn't know, but he still knew, and it was frightening. One person was Peter. Remember when Peter said, Jesus, I will never turn away from you. And I think he was sincere. Anyone doubt his sincerity? In that moment, I actually believe he really believed that he would never turn away from Jesus. But Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter, at that point, I don't think he really believed that he would do that. He really believed that he was sold out for Jesus and he would not deny him. On the night of Jesus' arrest, the story is told where Luke says that um, as the rooster crowed after denying Jesus three times, it just so happened that Jesus was being led through the courtyard where Peter was denying him and they caught eyes with each other and they stared at each other. And Jesus, I don't know what his look must have looked like. I would imagine it was a look of 
Actually, I really believe it was a look of love. Not judgment, but love. And it's the reason why Peter was so struck with shame and guilt. Because in the eyes of Jesus, he saw someone who actually deeply loved him, knowing what Peter was going to do. And that was so shameful that he wept bitterly. Peter, in the deepest core of his heart, didn't see himself as someone who would do what he did. But Jesus knew it fully. And that's why Jesus does not entrust himself to someone like Peter. Because he knows exactly what Peter would do. And he doesn't entrust himself to anyone, according to verse 24, because he knows people. What does he know about people? He knows we are inherently self-centered. That's what sin is at the core, is that we live for ourselves. And society lives for itself. And culture lives for itself. Its own purposes, its own victories. And so Jesus knows that if he were to entrust himself to another person, to the world, he would become like them. If that happened, he could never go to the cross. He couldn't save anyone. The real problem with us is that we do do that, unlike what Jesus doesn't do. And he's warning us in a sense, do not do this. Do not entrust yourself to others. Now, he's not saying do not trust others. He's saying do not entrust yourself to others. And there's a difference between the two. When we as Christians, even as a Christian, if I marry my wife who is a believer, who is a Christian, and the two of us go into marriage, what we quickly find out is that I married a sinner and she married a sinner and it's painful and there's conflict. But it should be always the, the realization that this is going to happen. You should never be shocked when you, as a Christian, marry another Christian who is a sinner and you actually have trouble in your marriage. It's actually hard. It should make sense to you. If you have a friendship and you are in Christ, you are first sinners who are saved. And so therefore, while there's blessings and you might say, this person they're my soulmate. I love them. Every time I hang out with them, I feel so good about myself until it doesn't feel so good. Until there's a break, until there's a conflict, until they let you down, until there's a misunderstanding or there's hurt and pain. And you say, it shouldn't be, I can't believe she did that. I can't believe he said that. It should be, I know I can imagine this happening. I'm, I'm friends with a sinner. Of course this should happen. Two church members. Once you enter into community, into a church, and you decide, I'm going to be a member of a church, well, get ready. You're experiencing life together with a group of sinners, and sinners mess up, and they hurt, and they let you down, and they don't always do things rightly. But we come together and we still give of ourselves, we still trust but we never entrust. In other words, to entrust yourself to somebody is to give them your heart, your identity, your ultimate identity. And Jesus is saying, there's only one person who deserves your heart, your ultimate heart, and it's Christ himself. No one else, not a husband, not a wife, not a child, not a parent, not a best friend, not a therapist, not a counselor, 
Only one person. And the reason is because he's perfect. He will never take advantage of you. He doesn't want anything from you. You can't give anything to him. There's no transaction between you and him that's going to make him suddenly say, all right, I get it. I really love you now because you're so good and you offer this to me. And this was what was lacking in my heart. But now because you gave this to me, I feel really good about myself. That's not who Jesus is. He has everything he could ever want or need. When you enter into a relationship with him and you entrust him with your heart, what you're doing is giving him something that is your treasure that he promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your heart, your treasure, where your treasure is, your heart is also. Build it where there is no thief that can steal it, where there's no moth that can eat it away and destroy it. But everywhere else, wherever you give your heart, you're going to be disappointed. This is what I would say to a young person. If you're in high school, college, be mindful if you're a single person of whom you give your heart to. I do think we readily give our hearts away so quickly. You know, it's like just, and it makes sense. Our hearts are longing. We're, we're created for him. And we want to give that because we want that fulfilled, that emptiness. And so the instinct is to think, as long as I find a man or a woman, I'll feel really good. Finally, I'm going to be satisfied until you actually give that heart. And they stomp on it, or they take advantage of it, or they exploit it, or they abuse it. And then there's tragedy and sorrows. Last week, George uh, had shared with Axis, uh, two weeks ago, actually, and um, one of the things he was talking about was he gave the illustration of an egg and he said, whatever you do, you have, this egg is your precious gift. Do not let it fall to the ground because once it falls and it drops and it's cracked, the Lord puts it together. He redeems it. But you know, there is a pain that goes with that even after the redemption. Like David, who gave away his heart to Bathsheba, killing Uriah in the process. And God redeemed him, sovereignly used him, but his life would be a life of pain. And so the reason is because this heart of yours, it is a treasure. And it must be given to that person whom you know will never exploit it. And it's not your husband or your wife, it's Jesus. The greatest danger is that we think it's our husband and our wife. And here's, for those of you who are married, when you get married, and if you ever feel like, this is not the man I thought I was getting. How come when, he was, when we were dating, he opened my doors for my car? He, when I would carry my bag, he would carry all my bags. And then suddenly, as soon as I said, I do, I'm carrying all the bags. My doors aren't being opened. They just want to hang out with their friends all the time. They're acting like a bachelor inside our marriage. And the disappointment of that and the sorrows and the disconnect, it's because we're, we're actually thinking someone like him is going to satisfy my deepest longings. And the answer is he never will. And she never will. And our parents never will. Our boyfriend never will. Our fiance never will. It's only the Lord. You entrust 
him with your life, with your heart, with your soul. Only he is worthy of it. And here's the promise. When you do that, you can trust others, actually. In John chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus tells us, my father who has given them, them meaning Christians, to me, true Christians, that is, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So when you entrust your life to Christ, and you've given your heart to him, and you say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you lead me, and you are my identity. I'm a son, I'm a child, and no one can snatch me from the Father's hand. No one can take that core identity from me. My heart is yours. It's not my wife's, it's not my boyfriend's, it's yours. When that happens, then you're willing to open up your heart to other people because you're not afraid of being hurt. Because when you open up your heart to love someone and they take advantage of it because you've been vulnerable, you know they can never steal that which is ultimately secure. And so if you're a child of God, you know your identity. That identity makes you go into any relationship and say, I love you. And that might mean my wife. I love my wife. I really do. I mean, I, in, in our years of life together, it's just more and more. And I am so thankful for that. But I believe with all my heart, the reason why that's growing is that I don't love her more than my Savior. My Savior is whom I really love. And the marriage is only a picture of this love that I have for my Savior. So the more that I actually entrust my heart to my Savior, the more I'm willing to trust my wife and vice versa. But if I think that I'm going to find my security, my comfort, my joy, and this is, by the way, why a single person can experience the same thing, whether you're single or married, is that you're never entrusting your life to a person. You're entrusting to the person, Christ. You don't have to be married for this. You don't have to be um, someone who's been walking with the Lord for a long time. You can start today. You can be a teenager and entrust your life to Christ. And I guarantee you that will help you in your relationships, your friendships, in your pursuit of a man or a woman. You've, you're already set in your identity, in your core identity. And that goes with you wherever you go. So you're not, you will study hard not to please your parents, but because you have the Lord. You're living for him. So grades matter, but they don't matter. Your job matters, but they don't matter. Your wife and husband matters, but they don't matter. Whether you have children or not, whether you're married or not, what matters is him. And when that happens, everything else becomes unlocked. And so the person who has this is free to be hurt. And the person who is free to be hurt is the person who is free to truly love another person. Once you start saying, I don't want to be hurt, you'll never love a person. Not really. You'll not be sacrificial in your love. But when you're in Christ, because that's secure who you are, you're free to love a person enough to be hurt. And that's the only way you grow in relationship with people, with one another. I hope you understand that. So when we see Jesus doing this, what he's doing is he's setting himself up to love us to its ultimate point of giving himself up forever. I mean, in that he's dying on the cross for us, so he's able to truly love us by not entrusting us himself to us. 
That should make sense. I hope that makes sense in line with this. This realization, it unlocks relationship, really. A loving, persistent, persevering, faithful, covenantal relationship to the end. Lastly, the last realization from this passage, it's sort of linked together, is that needing is not knowing. Verse 24 to 25. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We see here in verse 25, Jesus doesn't need us. You know, he doesn't need the disciples at all. He doesn't need their insights. In fact, their insights were pretty bad, right? He doesn't need their flattery. He's not looking for to be accepted. You know, so many people want, and again, from every age, wants a friend, wants friend groups. Jesus did not get disciples to have a group of friends. He allowed friends into his sphere because he was already secure. This is the gospel of John. He constantly talks about this idea that he is already secure in the father's love. That's what gives him the best relationship with others, the ones that does not fail even when they fail him. It's secure because he's secure. And so when you don't need someone, when you don't need to be loved, you're ready to love others. Jesus is not a beggar on the street. You never pray, I beg you, O Lord. We're not beggars. And he's not begging. And by the way, uh, one of the most misinterpreted passages of all the scriptures, Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. And if you ever seen the famous painting where Jesus is at the door knocking, and he's saying, I hope he opens, I hope he opens, I hope she opens the door. That is an absolute mischaracterization of who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't need you to peek open your door because he's hoping. If he wants to get in, he will get in. We, he, he never begs us to trust him. He's not a beggar. He's not begging you because he doesn't need us. And not needing us is exactly what allows him to die for us. Because of the fact that he is free to die for us. There's nothing we pay him for. Like just trusting and believing, even that is not what he needs. He just simply acts. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To get a picture of how much our God knows about us, Psalm 139, 12 through 13, David says this about the Lord. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, for you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's exactly why he's free to love us. He's not looking to abuse us or to take something from us. When he loves us, he does so simply because he is good and merciful. And that's it. And so you will never be free to truly love and care for one another until you know that you are free from their need of you and your need of them. You cannot love someone fully if you need their love because it'll always be transactional at that point. It's always, what can I get out of this? And I've shared this illustration numerous times. I gotta share it again because it just, it just happens so often is that I'm washing dishes and it used to be, early in our marriage where I would say, in my mind, I'd be thinking, 
if I wash the dishes, she, she needs to do X for me. And you're probably thinking, boy, that is so, uh, you, I know some of you women are probably thinking, oh, man, that guy, he's pretty messed up. I mean, I, I, I had that thought constantly. It was especially the dishes. And you know why? Because I was, I didn't have to wash dishes when I was growing up as a kid. Mothers, make your sons wash dishes as a kid. really helps. Make your sons especially wash dishes. Well, anyway, I was, and then slowly but surely, it, it became a little bit, I became a little better. Then I would start saying, okay, I should, I had to preach to myself, gotta wash dishes because I gotta show my love. And then slowly it's becoming more of, I want to wash the dishes, <laughs> I mean, I love washing the dishes. <laughs> I, I want to do it every day. And now Sue is saying, don't wash the dishes. She's saying, don't want. I'm like, we're fighting over me wanting to wash the dishes and her saying, don't wash the dishes because I'm going to wash. It's not because it did anything. It's just a transformation of this idea that, you know, I just want to love her. That's it. And I don't need anything from her. I don't need a single thing from her. What I really want is just her. And that transformation is exactly what the Lord wants from us. We have to be at a place where we say, Lord, I love you. And the more you do it, not because he's going to give you a single thing, not health, not money, not prosperity, not a job, not a career, just that prayer of not asking for anything, but just saying, Lord, I love you. I love you. I worship you. You're who I want. I, it's, it's not just about my family. It's not about the church. It's about you. I love you. And when that comes, that just opens your heart to everyone. It makes you love people, not because they give you something. They do something for you. You love them because you love Christ, because he loved you first. This is the Christmas message. It really is. It's the message of God sent his son because he loved us while we were still sinners so that we can love other people. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that you called us your son, your daughter, but it wasn't just a call, it was a price to be paid. We had to be purchased. There was no hope. We wanted nothing to do with you, but you still, you didn't just knock on that door, you tore it down. The veil was torn, the chasm was breached, and in its place we have been restored in fellowship with you so that we are now sons and daughters. Lord, so much of our brokenness is because we look to other people rather than you to be our fulfiller, to be our satisfaction, to be our utmost joy. But only when we see you as you are will we be free to love you and one another. As we take from this table, remind us once again, O oh Lord, that we cannot just be satisfied with life as it is. Help us to believe that which we see and to believe it with all of our hearts. May we never entrust ourselves to anyone or anything, but only to Jesus, you alone. 
And may we need no one except for you, Lord. And I know in doing so, you, the lover of our souls, the filler of our every need and our every longing, you will quench our thirst. You are the one who will satisfy us to the end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.